It's Tuesday, May 1st, and this is The Daily Dive. On Sunday, a caravan of asylum seekers from Central America arrived at the San Ysidro border crossing facility in San Diego, hoping to turn themselves in to U.S. border inspectors in the hopes of being granted asylum from their home countries, where they are fleeing gangs and violence. They were denied entrance because there's no space to accommodate them. The wait extended a second day into Monday. We will speak to reporter Steve Gregory, who was there when migrants arrived, and tell us what happened and what they can expect next. We will also talk about a fascinating story about actress Allison Mack, who has been accused of being a top recruiter for a sex cult, which operates under the guise of a self-help group offering executive success programs. The organization called Nexium is now facing scrutiny for being a front that recruits women into being sex slaves for the group's founder. We will speak to BuzzFeed reporter David Mack for the latest in this story. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's been a tough journey. It's been also an adventure. The hardest adventure was being on the train. We were a couple of days without food, but there was uh, people in solidarity that gave us food and refuge. Joining us now is Steve Gregory. He's a news reporter covering the story of the caravan reaching the border. Explain to us what happened. You were there on Sunday when the caravan finally arrived. What happened and what are these people arriving for? Well, Oscar... The group that I met up with in Tijuana on Sunday morning is uh, part of a larger group that started this journey from Central America a little over a month ago. And the estimate was anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 people, and these were mostly families, that were coming up through Mexico riding La Bestia, which is the beast or the big train that uh, you might see on the news. And a lot of those families were on that train, came up, and about halfway through the journey, President Trump had come out publicly against what was happening and said there's no way that these people are going to get into the country regardless if they're trying to seek asylum or not. So somewhere along the way, because of President Trump's comments and a lot of pressure, the Mexican government sort of stepped in and issued temporary visas to anyone who wanted one. So that group of a little over 1,000 people quickly shrank to about half the size because a lot of people decided to stay in Mexico. So that group of about 500 continued the journey north. But more and more people started to peel off because they either got tired, they just wanted to go back home, they got separated from their families, and then as they got closer and closer to the border, they started to get more and more information about what the asylum process is in the United States. It's not as simple as people think it is. All of the folks coming up from Honduras and El Salvador have been told back in their home countries, how easy it is to come into this country. And and basically, there's a red carpet waiting for them when they get here, and that is not the case. I was there Sunday morning when the group first arrived to the border fence to see the border fence for the very first time in the most northwestern part of the Mexican country. And it's right where that corner of Mexico meets the most southwesterly part of the United States. So if you can imagine two corners of these two countries meeting right at the Pacific Ocean on the beach. And that's where those people met another group of people on the U.S. side that had walked down from Los Angeles to greet them to show that there's solidarity and support. Were they being celebrated there at the time? I, I, yeah. I, I saw videos and pictures of people jumping up on the fence at one point. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was on the Mexico side. So I was, in, I was right there at Friendship Park in Tijuana, Baja. And you could 
you could kind of feel the jubilation and the joy, the elation of these people kind of like finally arriving to their final destination. The mood was all happy. It was all happy, hopeful, uh, tears of joy. People, as you mentioned, climbing up to the top of these tall metal pillars that make up the fence, and they were, you know, they unfurled flags, the Honduran flag. People had flowers. They had posters and banners. Some of them read, you know, refugees are welcome, racists are not, that kind of thing. Then after that, they decided they were going to walk over to the pedestrian gate together as a unified front. What they didn't expect was when they arrived at the pedestrian gate that the Mexican immigration officials were going to be meeting them there and telling them, sorry, but the U.S. has shut down all asylum applications until further notice. Up until this point, Oscar, these folks have gotten a green light because they, the people, this Pueblo Sin Fronteras group out of San Diego that organizes these types of caravans every year, they, they know the people to call, they make these arrangements, and they figure it all out and everything. Up until that point, they had every indication that there was a green light for them to proceed and to come into the gate. Right, and U.S. officials ended up telling them that there was no room there at that area, that they couldn't accommodate them and process them. Correct. What they had been processing is they had been processing people that had already come through earlier in the week from that caravan. Some people had already gotten advice from attorneys, some there in Tijuana and others coming down to the United States to help, but some had already gone through the process earlier in the week. And as of Monday afternoon, 11 refugees had been arrested for illegally crossing into the country, and that had happened over the weekend. And where did they? Where were they crossing that they got apprehended? We know that there was at least a pregnant woman and a four-year-old girl. The pregnant woman apparently was trying to come through a very dark and dangerous canyon just east of the San Ysidro border. The four-year-old in the same canyon area. Some had been climbing over the dilapidated uh, metal fence just on the west side of the San Ysidro port of entry. And they were all caught within a 48-hour period. So the immigration officials and customs officials have been processing those arrests on top of the people that are already coming to seek asylum. So this is one of the reasons, according to U.S. officials, that they were unable to accommodate that big group of people on Sunday. Where are these other people in the meantime? Are there shelters set up, or are they you know, staying well, on the streets? there's a group of folks, a group of refugees have chosen to camp out, and the Mexican government has allowed it. But there's a, a very large sort of plaza, if you will, a big concrete plaza in front of this pedestrian gate. This is the busiest land port in the United States. This is the number one place where people cross on a daily basis. So this pedestrian gate is much larger and much more modern than the old one that's further east. And so that when they got there, there's this huge concrete plaza right front, right next to uh, a freeway or a bridge, overpass rather. And they're right now, there's a lot of them that are just camping out there with tents, sleeping bags, blankets, anything that, that, that people give them. And some people have chosen to go back and stay in churches and shelters. But the U.S. government has said that they're going to start trying to accommodate 20 people at a time. But I checked in with officials, organizers. They still had processed anybody, but they said to get 20 people ready to go in, and that was at midnight Sunday into Monday morning. And most of these people are coming from Honduras and El Salvador, and the people that you got a chance to speak to, why are they claiming asylum? What, what are they running from? Well, across the board, everyone that I interviewed through interpreters 
told me that they were escaping fear in their country, the fear of, of reprisals from gangs, the fear of being attacked, the fear of being robbed, the fear of uh, you know living in a corrupt government society in their home country. That was basically the blanket response I got from everybody I interviewed. And I interviewed um, a couple fathers, a, a, a mom, and a 15-year-old girl, and they all had the same answer. And this is fairly new. Now, the, the act of asylum has existed for as long as the United States has had an immigration policy. What's fairly new in the last decade is claiming asylum because of gang activity. Steve, tell me a little bit more about this Pueblos Sin Fronteras group. I know they've been organizing this thing for years, this big caravan, but they're counseling these people. They're helping them with lawyers and whatnot so they can get a better chance at being granted asylum. Sure. These are the types of individuals who have gotten together and said, listen, we want to give these immigrants and these migrant workers and anyone who comes up from a foreign country a kind of a fighting chance, if you will, to get into the country. And they want them to do it legally. They're, they're really promoting the, the legal way of doing it. The criticism has come over the years with groups like Pueblo Sin Fronteras and others like it. They're starting to blur the line between what's ethical, what's legal, and what's proper. What's happening now is we're noticing is a lot of these individuals are being coached how to, how to respond to the questions because they know all the questions that customs officers are going to ask. They know the process, the procedure, and the lawyers know what, what's legal, what's not. But there's been a lot of criticism lately because these individuals are being coached on what to say when they go in. So what happens is these customs officers are sitting there and they're getting the same answer to the question from everyone who comes through. And at one point, Customs officials are going to say, listen, if you're giving me false information or you're being coached on what to say, that in itself is actually an infraction of the law, and you'll be presented to um, the Department of Justice or the Attorney General's office for prosecution. And the administration so, has said as much that they're not going to tolerate any fraudulent asylum seekers. Right. The burden, obviously, is on the person seeking asylum. And these officers are trained in what they call credible fear interview. and you have to establish that you have a credible fear of your home country in order to be granted just past that first level. Then you've got to go into a hearing. Then you've got to convince a judge of the same thing. If you sit there and you're talking to this customs official, you have to convince that individual. Because, I mean, where are you going to bring physical proof? I mean, if you bring pictures of maybe some scars that you, you got or medical records or something that shows you've been attacked or something along those lines, that might help the cause significantly. But when you just sit there and you just say, listen, I, you know, I don't like, I hear gunshots in my neighborhood all the time, that's not going to be enough to grant you and your family asylum. So these individuals, as you mentioned before, are being coached on what to say and what to do, and I'm not there individually witnessing it, so I don't know what they're being told, but I can tell you that the answers to some of my questions were all the same from all the different individuals. So this process takes how long? From in, being well, interviewed there at the border to the, appearing before a judge, how long does this all take? The average wait right now for an immigration hearing is two years. Wow. It's estimated that there's a little over 200,000 people waiting for their hearing. That's over, they've already got a hearing date. And there's also an estimate that there's a little over 200,000 that are in the system waiting for their court date. So you've got almost a half a million people that are already stuck in the asylum system. What happens, though, is when they go in for that process, let's say they pass that first hurdle, they immediately split up the family, and they're going to send the kids. Sometimes they keep the kids and the moms together, 
But the men are all put into one detention center, the women in another, and the children in another. And the ones that might make it through the San Ysidro Center would probably be sent to one of two shelters in the Texas area. And so they've got these centers set up, and that's where they have to stay. Some of them may be released on their own recognizance with a, a GPS bracelet. Some will just be released and expected to show up for their hearing. And sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Right, and that's one of the major fears is losing people in the system and never being able to find them again. Steve Gregory, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. I want to be remembered for the things that are most important to me, the way that I impacted people. I want to be remembered as a woman who was honest and true and strong, the most satisfying and purposeful thing I've ever done. Watching the women who are involved in Jeunesse completely transform and evolve in a way that is so pure. Really, literally seeing people's lives path completely turn. Joining us now is David Mack. He's a BuzzFeed news reporter. Let's talk about this self-help group, multi-level marketing organization known as Nexium. What is it and why is it in the news right now? So Nexium was started by a man named Keith Rainier in uh, the late 90s. And it is, as you said, it's kind of like a self-help community. Within it, there are a bunch of different programs. One of them is this executive success program, which a couple of people who are involved in it have described to me as kind of like just your average kind of self-help, motivational stuff, similar to what you might see in a Tony Robbins, uh, you know, kind of uh, session. Uh, a lot of sort of the power of the individual, things like that. But there's also another group in there called uh, J which is targeted at women specifically in the group. And uh, it's about this, these members who are part of this program told me the aim of this group is to sort of preach on the difference between the sexes according to uh, Keith Rainier and how men are biologically more trustworthy and more reliable and women have a lot more faults that need to overcome and they need to be conscious of these in order to live their best womanhood selves. And it's kind of a, a female community though, a lot of women supporting women, that kind of thing. But there's also a third secret group in this Nexium group and that such that other Nexium members didn't even know who was involved in this group. And this was a secret sex cult called DOS, which prosecutors, federal prosecutors say was set up by Keith Rainey as a kind of sex cult pyramid scheme, if you will, where there were layers and there was a master-slave situation at multiple levels in this group. And many of the women were branded with what prosecutors say were Keith Rainier's initials. What did that brand look like? I, I saw some pictures, but please describe it. Women who were in the group were told uh, that it was a... Um, four elements, earth, wind, air, and fire as a kind of design. But what it actually is, it's, it's a kind of a series of lines, which when you uh, turn it one way on the skin, you can clearly see a K and then an upside down R, capital R as well. So obviously being the initials of Keith Rainier. Right. Just kind of hiding in plain sight, really. That's right. That's right. It's not maybe when you first look at it, you might not see that. But when it's pointed out to you, uh, it's just certainly there. And that this, uh, this, an image of this uh, branding is in the federal indictment that prosecutors have unveiled. And what made this story really crazy all of a sudden was this involvement of this actress named Alison Mack. She was on a CW show called Smallville. How did she get involved and what's her, what is her place in this quote unquote sex cult? 
Well, that's right. She's a, a 35-year-old now, but uh, many years ago she was on this show, Smallville, as you say. She was one of the top two or three leads on this show and considered kind of a, a love interest for friend character for the Clark Kent character there. She hasn't had much of a career since then, but we know that for about the last 10 years or so she's been involved in Nexium and then Janus, uh, something she posted about frequently on her social media channels. And also now prosecutors say she was the second in command to Keith Rainier as his um, his direct slave, and she had a number of slaves underneath her as well. And prosecutors have now charged her, like uh, Keith Rainier, with sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, and forced labor conspiracy as well for getting allegedly uh, the other women in this cult to uh, essentially perform chores in this community. It's a pretty horrific picture that prosecutors have painted where women who joined this group were told that they needed to provide some sort of collateral, this is the term that was used, uh, in order to join this secret group within Nexium. And frequently that involved taking nude photographs and sexual photographs, but it also involved writing or saying on camera false defamatory statements about people you may love. And uh, in for the case of Alison Mack as well, allegedly, signing over even the deed to her house to Keith Rainier, such that if she ever broke her vow to him, he would have her house. How were women chosen to be part of this group? I know she was recruiting them, but was it, I mean, any woman that they felt they could coerce into this or were they were all part of this other Nexium branch, the ESP programs? So we don't know exactly how women were chosen and how and what, and what sort of characteristics they were looking for, but we do know that they did definitely recruit from within the Nexium ranks and then also specifically from Janus as well. So I've spoken to two women who uh, have known Alison Mack for a very long time and were sort of going in and out of these Nexium programs and involved in Janus. They've both said how they've noticed her change over the years and how she began, as one woman said, a kind of bratty, kind of a bit self, um, full of herself actress that you might expect and gradually become really, really in, in, intensely interested in this ESP program and this Janus philosophy. And, uh, Prosecutors have said then that she's become obviously the second in command to Keith Rainier, helping to recruit women into uh, this secret sex cult. The two women that you talked to said that she started off very nice, very interested in them. And then how did it turn? What did she start doing to really groom them for this? Only one of the women that I spoke to was specifically asked by another woman, not Alison Mack, but another woman, uh, she says, was asked uh, to, to join this uh, secret sex cult. She said this, she declined upon seeing uh, the branding of the, the woman who revealed uh, the, the, obviously what we were just talking about, the letters KR. She got out of there quick smart. But basically what they described was a really, as you said, a very intense sort of coach-mentor relationship with Mac and, and these women, where Mac was, one of them said, the sister you always wanted. She was always available, always friendly, always willing to listen to you, even to the point where these women were told then gradually over the years to you know, leave their partners, to leave their jobs, to move up to Albany in upstate New York, where this group was headquartered, and even to, uh, in one woman's case, had her diet monitored by Mac. Prosecutors have said that Keith Rainier preferred extremely uh, thin women. Uh, That was his sexual preference. And one of these women told me about how Alison Mack underwent this massive weight loss while she she was already a small woman. She was already very thin, yeah. 
Yeah, very thin, and she lost even more weight under this time in this group. She described how she, you know, saw Alison counting out lettuce leaves in her salad, and they've described how over the years, obviously, in addition to losing weight, she became more sort of quick to anger uh, in what they said, that she was very uh, disappointed in one of the women at one point for not recruiting enough women into the JNS program, and she said to her, you need to, essentially, you should consider coming up to Albany if you want to be serious about this, and uh, made this woman cry and then she had to, Allison later apologized to this woman for making her cry. Nexium is the big umbrella corporation. Then the smaller group within that is the JNS, which is focused specifically on women. Yes. And then following that, they recruit you into this DOS group, which is the quote-unquote sex cult. That seemed to be the map that I was given of the group because uh, DOS was described to the women as a kind of uh, group that was just for women, that they didn't know that it was that Keith Rainier was actually at the top of this little uh, secret group within them. So they were recruiting then from this JNS group. And these, I should mention these programs all cost thousands and thousands of dollars to join. So people were spending a lot of money and uh, then going, and these were taking a years-long pro- pro- programs. You were going back there sometimes up to Albany every year for this annual gathering, you were participating in events, you were constantly communicating with other members through social media and through meetups, and then obviously this secret group, DOS, uh, yes, it does appear that they were drawing specifically from this JNS group. Keith Rainier and Allison Mack have been charged with uh, sex trafficking and other sex crimes. Where are they now? I know Allison is uh, out on bail, and uh, she's in California currently. That's right. So uh, she's under house arrest in California, and she's also been barred by the judge from contacting any person that's associated with uh, Nexium. We should say she's not on $5 million bond. Her parents have also had to put up a deed to their house in order to get her out. And he's in jail. No, No bond for him? I don't believe so, no. And what's the next step for this? Prosecutor, uh, they go to court, they go to trial? That's right. So prosecutors seem very serious about this. This is a real, uh, you know, they're really pressing forward with this case, obviously very horrific details. We can expect that prosecutors here in uh, the Southern District of New York, uh, or rather Eastern District, I should say, are very serious about pursuing this. Wow. It's an amazing story. David Mack, BuzzFeed News reporter, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.